This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome to Off the Ball with me, Cam Ruslan, as your new host. And we have a packed program of international football, World Cup qualifiers, and friendlies, and Malaysia. And uh, our three pundits today are Gogolin. Hello, hello. Good to be back on a Monday. Oh, yeah. And it's a rare sighting of a Gogolin on a Monday. And Kishanan Sundaresan. <laughs> hello, hello, guys. What a weekend of football it was. Hey, he's yeah. only known as Kish in world football, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like Cher or Sting. And no, so, Madonna. <laughs> Madonna, so <laughs> Kish is Kish. And we have a first-timer on Off the Ball. He was uh, scouted by the BFM team. He was uh, promising in the lower leagues, and he's been given a shot at the big time. <laughs> a lot of promise on the wing. He is Azran Rozan. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me here. Uh, great right. to be in the top tier of uh, football punditry. <laughs> uh, I, and I'm glad you acknowledge that this is the top tier. And uh, so uh, we're going to start off with internationals. But uh, we talked about this on Fridays. But I want to kind of go back to it because it's really been playing on my mind. We've got this uh, path A, path B for European qualifiers. And as such, Portugal is still in with a shout. Italy are out. And Keisha, I want to start with you. Uh, because uh, I, I want to know, where did it all go wrong for Italy? Wow, where do we even begin? It's an absolute disaster. Um, it's, it's a national disaster, really, for Italy. And weirdly enough, um, four years ago, or even five years ago, when they missed out of the 2018 World Cup, it was actually a lot more understandable, because that team was in a, was in a state of complete disarray. Um, there was a breakdown in relationship between the manager, Gian Piero Ventura, and the players. I think we famously remember in that final qualification game how Ventura and Daniel De Rossi were fighting on the touchlines. Uh, there, there, there was also you know, horrendous tactical approaches by Ventura. But this time around, it's, it's a little more painful because this team has quality. It's a little more painful because this team did everything it did in the last you know, three, four years, including winning the Euros last year. And there was a lot of expectation, put aside qualification, there was a lot of expectation and hope that this Italian side could go on to win the World Cup even. That's, that's how excited the Italians were. And to see them not just qualify for the World Cup is considered an, an absolute national disaster. And, and honestly, it will take days, Cam, to be able to break down where it all went wrong. But I think there's two very important things here. Um, one is, in, in very simple terms, one is the very fact that there was a sense of complacency growing within the Italian team. Because if you watch their post-Euro win World Cup qualifiers, a lot of the games that took place last November, last December, a lot of these games, the Italians were very lackadaisical in some of those games, where they ended up getting a 1-1 draw, where in some of those games where they clearly should have won, could have won, but they ended up getting a draw out of it, which quite literally put them in, the, in that situation against North Macedonia. As, it, as the Italians say, the failure wasn't the fact that we lost against North Macedonia. The failure was the fact that we were in the playoffs to begin with. And the second thing is, and this one you have to go deep on another day or a separate situation, which is the fact that Italy has an obsession with uh, romanticizing old players. And I know Mancini came in, he, he had a bit of a reset of that squad, but that reset needs to be a lot more aggressive. 
You look at that front line, you look at some of the best players in the Serie A this season, being young players, Gianluca, Scamacca, Raspadori. These are the sort of players that should be starting at this point. Um, so there, there, there is a big cultural reset that needs to happen in Italian football at the moment, or else this is a trend that could come back to haunt them. Uh, Azran, can I ask you, not having Italy in a World Cup, is that a disaster for the World Cup? I wouldn't call it a disaster per se, but it's a big loss, no doubt. Italy is one of the world's superpower footballing nations, as you can say. And in fact, the Serie A this year, this year's Serie A run has been one of the most exciting in recent years. I think the other teams are starting to pick up. Okay, either that or Juventus are starting to fall apart. I'm not so sure which one is which. But it's it makes for an exciting race, at least in the Italian Serie A. So it's unfortunate that Italy missed out. I Personally, I think they were unlucky. Uh, they won the Euros, no doubt about it, and they went on an unbeaten run. Uh, they could have qualified easily. Again, could have, would have, should have, of course. In fact, Jorginho, uh, he himself mentioned that his misses, because he missed two penalties uh, against Switzerland in both games. One, one in uh, Switzerland and the other one in the Olympico Stadium where he missed in the last minute. Uh, that would haunt him, he said, for the rest of his life, and rightly so. It's unfortunate. But these two games, if they could have taken an additional point, they would have qualified easily. And uh, I would say it's... Um, um, it's really unlucky because I believe Mancini has, as as Kish mentioned, has tried to, because it's a changing of the guard, no doubt, for Italy. We remember the team that won the World Cup in 2006 and that team kept on playing. You can see the back line was still the same back line until recently. Uh, so with the emergence of the Serie A again, hopefully Mancini can, again, it's a proper changing of the guard and really put in all these young players that's shown through in the Serie A uh, recently. So perhaps he has to break away from the, the, that past Italian team and start start really fresh. But it's really unfortunate to, to see the champions of European championships missing out in the World Cup. Uh, mm. We wouldn't want to see it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, Gogolin, Portugal uh, still in. Italy out. Portugal will be playing North Macedonia in the final. I guess we call it the final. Uh, on Tuesday, it's uh, Pepe. Pepe is back. Pepe's legendary uh, player. Legendary for his, I don't know, how do we describe his uh, style of play? Hooliganism on the pitch. <laughs> the dark arts, the dark arts. The dark arts. Uh, Gogolin, who do you think? Um, North Macedonia and um, Portugal, Ronaldo, Ronaldo's and Pepe for that matter, surely their last major tournament. Yeah, definitely North Macedonia for that one. <laughs> Serious? <laughs> Oh, come on, kidding. I mean, I, they wrote their luck. If they, they play the same game plan against what they did, the Italians, you never know what's going to happen. This is a playoff final, right? So, again, it's a one-off game. If they do the same game plan, if they stick to the same game tactics of stifling that midfield and, you know, keeping the uh, flat back four and really, really holding out to the end. And, I mean, all you need is one shot at goal, as you as proved. But it's a bridge too far if you ask me for non-Macedonia. But, you know, you never know with, this, with, with the playoff finals. That is the romanticism of football. Back to your mm. question of whether Italy needed to be in the World Cup. These are box office draws. Italy, Italy is a box office draw at the World Cup, you know. Not only just the team, but the fans that they come for the World Cup. It's it's a real miss for the World Cup, and especially teams like Italy. Their fans are, they are one of the most boisterous and colourful if you've ever been to a World Cup. And, you know, you really need them, and especially in the opening uh, group stages. Yeah, well, Gogo, can I quickly ask you then? I mean, this, I'm getting into kind of like European Super League type type things. I mean, should should a, a, a country like Italy be virtually guaranteed a spot? No team should be really guaranteed a spot, as you, you know that. <laughs> no? 
Never, never, never. Nobody, everybody should earn their spot. I'm just saying that these are box office draws. Italy, Argentina, Brazil, you know, England, West Germany. Yes, you know, they have fallen off. They, they, are, they are cycles they go through, as Kish mentioned. They went through that cycle. They won the, the European Championships. And you would have expected the Italian team to be at the World Cup. And as Azran mentioned, the, the fact that they were in a playoff was already a... Bad as it is, and you know all those misses and all that coming up to that point. Mm, all they mm. needed was one point, right, during the group stages, and they would have made it, I think. Yep, yep. Against Switzerland, both they they drew both games when they could have won. Uh, two penalties missed at the same yeah, place. So they brought this on themselves. The fact that they were there in this spot. Yeah, but I think that uh, an Italy all-time eleven would probably win the World Cup every time. Keish, <laughs> yes, yes. what do you think? And also, Keish, while we're here, uh, Poland, Sweden. Why don't you just tell us that? No, I, I don't think an all-time uh, Italy eleven would win the World Cup every year. Uh, probably 20 years ago, maybe. But with the evolution of football, I think Italy are one of the last few countries to actually keep up with uh, the evolution in football. You look at the way... I mean, you, you look at the Brazilian team, for that matter, now, Cam. It's a completely unrecognizable team. It's not a team that plays the samba football anymore. It's a team that's filled with so much technically gifted players, uh, players that are very positionally aware, players that are very technically smart, not so much flair anymore. Um, and, and that goes to show the evolution in modern football. And I think Italy are one of the last few European heavyweights to actually catch up with that trend. So if, it, if, if you ask me, I, think, I, I don't think an all-time Italy wins the World Cup every single year. But going back to Poland and Sweden, this, this is a massive one. Um, it's, it's Lewandowski versus Ibrahimovic. Um, I, the, thing about, the thing about Lewandowski is it's one of those realities that is really unfortunate uh, that a player of his quality, we don't get to see, you know, get a lot more success on the international stage. I remember, you know, a few years ago or a while back, similar things used to be said about Ryan Giggs, for example, right? An incredible player on a local friend, but you could never be able to imagine him on the international stage. Um, and a similar situation could be said about Poland. But these these World Cup qualifiers are no longer about your Euro form anymore. Because Poland were very disappointing at the Euros, but this is no longer about the Euro forms. Because if you look at Czech Republic, they lost and they were great at the Euros. Um, and this is going to be a really, really, really tight one. Honestly, if you ask me, I really can't pick these teams apart. I know Sweden have looked really encouraging. But I keep going back to the fact that I don't really like a Sweden side with Ibrahimovic in it. I think it holds them, it holds them back to a large extent. They've got I I I much I'd rather much see Alexander Isak up front. I'd I'd rather see all the younger players coming through the system than them trying to hold on to Ibrahimovic. But honestly, if you ask me, Cam, I really can't pick these these two teams apart at the moment. Choose one, choose one, Keish. One, one. I, I I'm I'm gonna go with my romantic pick. I'd I'd rather see Lewandowski at the World Cup. Oh, okay. Okay, nicely chosen. Okay, and in a moment, though, we're, we're, after the break, we're going to look more in-depth at uh, a couple of the matches, friendly matches that have happened, and ask uh, about journeys to the World Cup final here on Off The Ball, BFM 89.9. Captain, leader, legend. Off The Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back. And now we're talking about some of the friendlies here on Off the Ball that have been played recently, the international friendlies. And, well, we talk a lot about the English Premier League on here, so we tend to concentrate on the England team. And I support the England team as well, so there you go. Uh, so we're going to start with England 2, Switzerland 1. 
and next week they're going to be playing Ivory Coast. England 2, Switzerland 1. Uh, Asran, the, uh, there's this guy called Luke Shaw. I'd forgotten all about him, but he pops up with a goal. Southgate is um, sticking with the, the people he trusts. Yes, I think um, if there's one complaint about Southgate, it's that's it. No? I mean, we saw it even in the finals. Uh, they had a good run. Uh, he trusts this, this group of people and post that, uh, he's still playing the same tactics with the same players. So talking about Luke Shaw, uh, it was a good goal. But um, I still believe he's suspect <laughs> defensively. But uh, Salgate, as, as mentioned, he trusts his players and he keeps on playing the same formations. They do grind out results such as this. Again, Switzerland, as we mentioned just now, they managed to qualify to the World Cup um, at the expense of Italy. Uh, they managed to beat Switzerland. But um, was it a convincing one? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. Personally, I, I'm not a big fan of how England is playing at the moment. Uh, they're grinding out results, but I think they will be found out in the major championships uh, when it comes to the uh, knockout stages. Gogolin, you're, you're not a fan of Gareth Southgate, but we have to remember that England got to the final of the Euros and the semi-final of the World Cup, which is more than they've ever done in like ni- 1966 and all the years combined. They've never done that in just in two tournaments. He's doing something right, surely. Oh, I mean, the players that England has is one of the the best generation of players they have right now. If you give other teams a look at the players that England have, they bite their right arm off, you know. It's just that they have a great man. And like Osman said, and I've mentioned this on Friday, the great team, wrong manager. He just needs to unshackle himself. He has to make a bet sometimes. He has to gamble on his players. He has to trust his players. And, you know, he has to take risks. In international football, you have to do. Yes, you made it to the final. But like Bob was saying the other day, you were 1-0 up in the final, in the, in the first minute. It was your best chance to win it. And you let the Italians back in the game. They were shell-shocked then. You should have just closed the game out. And you have to tactically do that by making... Uh, uh, so you had Jack Grealish on the bench. You know, and you hardly use him. I have really no idea. And I'm not, I'm not talking as a Villa fan, but I'm just saying... <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's waiting to say that. <laughs> no, I... I, I, I... The, the thing about international football and Gareth Southgate, it, it, it's a very tricky one. I think the discourse and the narrative around club football is a lot more easier to manoeuvre around because we we see consistency, we know what to expect, we, we've, we've got multiple case studies of what you've got to in different leagues. But international football is a tricky one because on one hand, we say we want flair. On one hand, we say we want expression. And we got that with the Spanish national team in 2010, for example, when they bombed their way all the way winning the World Cup and they looked incredibly um, good to the eye too not just winning the World Cup for that matter uh, but on the other hand you look at the Didier Deschamps formula at France now he has come under heavy criticism over the years for the same things that Southgate is coming under criticism for which is that France play a very bland style of football and you, and you look at the players available to Deschamps and, and, and you think to yourself they should be playing a lot more uh, progressive minded football but when it comes to Didier Deschamps, his priority is not playing beautiful football. His priority is winning games and winning tournaments. And they, they, they started initially under his tenure. They started, but they eventually did it. They, they lost the um, Euro 2016 final. But 2018, they came on to, to win the World Cup. It wasn't the most pretty French national team. They've got exceptional players, but it wasn't the most pretty national team. But it was fundamentally efficient. And that's why I'm very torn apart in this Gareth Southgate debate. Because on one hand, I want England to play um, more progressively. You look at the players available at their disposal. You look at that attacking 
options alone, it's ridiculous, like Gog said. I think any other team would jump at a chance of having a squad like England at the moment. But on the other hand, I wouldn't go so as far as to just push and say that Southgate needs to play progressive football because I've seen multiple managers in the past just get teams through tournaments by just scraping through results. And sometimes in tournaments, the most important thing is making sure that the team is just in the right space of mind. And Southgate seems to be a pretty smart guy at, at getting that. He knows how to build that team atmosphere. International football is a really weird one, especially tournament football where there's just six to seven games. Um, so I really I, I really don't know. Um, I, it could go either way. And, and, and honestly, I can really understand the arguments for Southgate, the arguments that are defending Southgate. It makes complete sense in my head. So Kish, perhaps what Southgate has to do is what Deshaun did in which they learnt from losing the painful loss of a final at home, learn yeah. from that and uh, win the next tournament. 100%. And I think one of the small things that Southgate is starting to do, um, we spoke about earlier about the fact that uh, there's that battle between loyalty and informed players. I- I'm still really annoyed that Fikayo Tomori isn't in the England squad because I think it's been phenomenal for AC Milan. But put that aside, you look at that team against uh, Switzerland the other day, there were a lot of encouraging performances. I thought Conor Gallagher was great in midfield. Uh, in that particular game. Um, ben White looked great at the back as well. There's Mark Gahey. Um, there was a lot of Kyle Walker-Peters got a shoe in. So, he, he's giving a lot of these players um, an opportunity to try and test themselves because he also knows some of the big names are going to miss out. And players like Marcus Rashford are, are at serious risk at the moment. So, there is a need to try and find new blood to see if these guys could be a part of that team chemistry going to the World Cup. Yeah. By the way, uh, a key feature of the BFM football drinking game is uh, hearing Goglin say Jack Grealish. Um, so <laughs> I hope everybody took a sip on that one. Hey, uh, Goglin, the uh, you know I was run down. He's a he's a Liverpool fan, and therefore I, I presume he worships Klopp. Um, I think that surely you can't get a manager like a Jurgen Klopp or a Guardiola. You have a particular style to be able to craft a national squad of players who come from different styles and you just get what you're given. So just to finish off with the Southgate thing, this is probably the only way to do it. Like Kish alluded to, and I think Bob's alluded to, Garrett is a great man manager and I have no qualms about that. And right, you need to have a great mental space and especially in tournaments because it's the whole team is there, you have the togetherness. And he was the under-21 manager, if I'm not mistaken, right before. And uh, so most of his players have come up with him and, you know, they have a sense of loyalty to him and they play for him. So I see all that. I'm just saying tactically he needs to step up because when you come to a tournament and you're progressing through, each game suits different styles. You're playing against different opponents and all that. So, you know, what? make minor tweaks. Don't be afraid to take risks. Tweak it a bit. Be tech, have a plan B, plan C, you know. I don't yeah. see that from Gareth Southgate. Maybe I'm not seeing it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, if you, if you get to the final of the Euros, it's like, come on, you know, not too bad. Uh, I want to I move to a, a different uh, country, uh, a country that to me is the, one of the great enigmas of football. Uh, they played a friendly just on Saturday, Netherlands 4, Denmark 2, where Christian Eriksen uh, had a return to the international game and he scored for Denmark. But the Dutch were pretty impressive. And Azran, I don't know if you've uh, followed the Dutch over the years, as I have. They're a strange enigma, do you not think? Yeah, the Dutch, um, I think somehow, 
before, at least the the I, I I suppose you remember the Dutch teams of the 90s, of the late 80s and the 90s. They did very well in qualifying, but somehow self-capitulated during the championships. Somehow there's always this issue of unity within the Dutch squad um, uh, at that point of time. I think that sort of improved when they went to the World Cup finals, uh, when Spain won it, as Kish mentioned, in, in really pure artistic fashion. They had a bit of unity and that led them to the final, but they were just they just fell short. And since then, they've missed a couple of championships and now they're back. So as you mentioned, they're consistently inconsistent, if you can say that. Eh? But the Dutch have always been known as a country and at least the academies, the club academies have been able to produce really young superstars. Uh, the Eredivisie sort of unfortunately fell about due to the Bosman ruling when a lot of their really young superstars went everywhere on a free transfer and that cost the uh, Dutch clubs a bit of revenue. But recently we've seen a bit of an upsurgence. Uh, you saw Ajax, uh, who should have gone to the uh, Champions League final uh, a couple of years back. Uh, that was a solid Ajax team and you see that has built a bit of the foundation for the Dutch. Uh, you see the likes of Matthias Delict, who is playing for Juventus now. He's he's a solid centre back. So the question for the Dutch now is: Will they have that unity going into the um, competitions? I hope so. Uh, they did really well in the championship, European Championship recently, until <laughs> that unfortunate loss they had. Looking at the the Ajax superstars, I I do have have a bit of hope that the Dutch will go at least um, to the knockout stages in the championship, in the, in the World Cup at least. And Kishnan, can you, can you put your finger on the, uh, the Dutch enigma? Are they in the game this time? Um, the Dutch enigma on a bigger scale is exactly what Azran spoke about, um, is that year in, year out, or, you know, they, they, they seem to have topsy-turvy performances every few years. Um, they peak and they drop and they peak and the graph is a little more uh, it's a little more dramatic when it comes to the Dutch national team. But if you zoom into this current team, um, I think it's an exciting one. I think it's, it's enigmatic because it, it's not filled with stars. But if you zoom in, you see a lot of players that are that are actually in pretty good form this year. Um, it, that, that defensive setup is, is probably one of the best. I mean, when you've got Virgil van Dijk, Matthias Dilek, I love Denzel Dumfries as a wingback. Um, Daily Blade is not the quickest. But he's one of the best progressive passers in world football. And, and we know Louis Van Gaal has a special place uh, for Daily Blin every time. And you look at that midfield, Frankie de Jong. Coop Miners has been terrific for, for Atalanta. Um, and the best part is you, you, you go through the bench. And I'm just quickly skimming through the bench here. And you look at players like um, Klassi and Hataboa, David Klassen, Wijnaldum, Martin Deron. These are all players that, that are looking good this year with the exception of maybe Wijnaldum, who's struggling a little bit at PSG. But every single one of them, including the, a couple of the Atalanta players on the bench there, they're great talents and they're looking good. And, and the best part, they've also still got, you look at their striking options from Memphis Depay, Steve Bergwijn, and the best part, if they want to go in a completely different dimension, they've still got Walt, you know, Berghorst available, who's been great for, for, for Burnley in the Premier League. It's an exciting team. There is a lot of reason to be excited. And, and, Louis Van Gaal, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because he's a chaotic football coach which promises entertainment for the neutrals. But I think when it comes to the, for the Dutch national team, there's a bit of concern over there as to how tactically progressive he can be at the World Cup when he gets to the crunch game. But if you ask me, Ken, this is a really, really talented Netherlands squad filled with young, exceptional players who are most importantly 
hitting good form at the right time for the Netherlands this year. So it'll be the Dutch playing England in the final. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that just yet. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, in a moment, uh, after a break, we're going to go down to South America way and look at the qualifiers there, and uh, we'll see if some other teams are going to play England in the final of the World Cup uh, here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. Because whilst he's there, it's been very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball with myself, Cam Ruslan, Gogolin, Azran, and Keish. We're all just one names now. No, except for me. Um, and Gogolin. South America, the qualifiers are coming to an end. Uh, we already knew that Brazil and Argentina were through, but now they've been joined by Uruguay and Ecuador. I'm amazed that Uruguay are not going to playoffs. I just thought that's just how it is. And they will either be joined by, either, I, think, I think, Colombia or Chile. Now, uh, Gogolin, you said the other day, and, and it's been on my mind, that Argentina are going to win the World Cup. But surely, uh, you know, uh, Di Maria is uh, he's getting old. Messi is getting old. And the old uh, Argentine tactic of just pass the ball to Messi hasn't really worked out. I mean, what are you basing your thoughts on uh, Argentina winning? Well, as, a, I was, as an Argentina fan, that's what I'm basing my thoughts on. Oh, oh, okay, all right, fine. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. You know, to be really, I really cannot say who's going to win the World Cup right now. It'd be, it'd be, it's a cup tournament. You have to the cup team that comes in at form is the, the team that's going to win. Of course, the pedigrees with teams like Brazil and Argentina, and these are teams that, like I said, know how to win in in cups in tournaments, right? They're managers who have been brought up with the whole ecosystem that is enabled them. These all players are playing. I think uh, the ninety five percent of the players play in Europe with the Argentina team. So. These are not teams that are they come together all the time, but they have been structured in such a way that they know how to win tournaments. So we never discount the South Americans, especially when it comes to the European. But the Europeans have caught up. I have to admit, teams like what Kish said for France, France learned the hard way, and but they went through progressing everything. I mean, it's nothing that is going to be burnt etched in your memory forever the way they won the 2018 World Cup, but they won it. You know, unlike the Brazilians who you know were back in the day where you can still talk about how the these are the Pele's, the teams, the, the great teams of the 70s. Even England's team and even the Argentinian teams of Kempes and Maradona and all that, these got seared into your memory. But, you know, the 2018 World Cup, uh, France, uh, who won it, uh, did it below the radar, if you ask me, as a fan. Yeah. You know, Azran, I, I was too young to ever see the Brazil 1970 squad, which is often quoted as being the greatest of all time. And actually, the Brazils that I've always watched have never been Brazil, if you know what I mean. They haven't played Brazil, <laughs> Brazilian style, and I, and I can't help but remember the the time that they were absolutely thrashed by uh, Germany, yep. which I think is still a, a stain on the memory. Do you do you see a South American country coming through? Be it Brazil or Argentina, surely it comes down to those two. Yeah, so far we know that uh, according to the records, uh, no South American team has won in European World Cups. Uh, Europe, sort of cut the buck back when um, you know Brazil lost it and that's, uh, that that game is probably etched, as you mentioned in the memory of all Brazilians probably the World Cup was for the Brazilians was that particular game obviously they they sort of patched things up when Argentina lost in the final uh, they were as happy with that but for sure that particular game is a big black spot in their history besides losing in the early World Cups in, at home as well so talking about 
Argentina. I, I, I'm a big fan of Lionel Messi, and uh, I do want to see him winning a World Cup to etch himself as one of the world's true greats. Uh, do I think they can make it? Probably. Uh, again, as as uh, Gogolin mentioned, it's too early to say who's going to win the World Cup at this point of time. Um, we will see probably when the World Cup actually starts, who starts well in the group stages. But um, looking at the World Cup qualifying, both Brazil and Argentina did not lose a single match. They played efficient, if not so beautiful football is what they're known for. So uh, back to your question, uh, Kam. Probably it's in Qatar. Uh, it's in November. Uh, the weather's not that crazy as in the summer summer months for sure. So um, and um, this sort of equalizes uh, the European threat because if the the the, the the World Cup was played in the summer, I think the Europeans would have uh, major trouble with that. Uh, but I think uh, the Europeans is, has as much a chance as uh, the South Americans in the World Cup. So it's yeah. anyway game at this point of time. I just want to say, Azran, that if it was played in the summer, I think human beings would have difficulty uh, <laughs> surviving a match. Try playing at 12.30 in a pitch in uh, Batu Caves, mate. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> oh, so Gogan's ready. He's ready for the World Cup. Yeah, can, can I just mention, if there's one human being out here who would be absolutely ready for the World Cup in the summer, it's probably Gogs. Have you seen his Instagram posts about running? This guy is running out there in the middle of the sun, like... <laughs> yeah, no, I have seen, and I and I, I don't like to look. It's just horrible. Um, hey, Keisha, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Uh, we talked about yeah. South America. I want to go north of the border now uh, to the North American football, where something remarkable has happened. Canada have progressed through to their first World Cup since Mexico '86, and uh, the United States men's national team are getting closer, but they 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 haven't yet qualified. Uh, but the there are three teams on equal points with Mexico as well as uh, Costa Rica, I believe. Canada, I mean, people who don't know, it's, it's come as a surprise. But people who do know say this is not a surprise. No, it's not a surprise. Um, if you look at their progression over the years, it's really not a surprise. Because at underage tournaments, um, the Canadian national team has, has been um, getting rave reviews over the years. Um, even in women's football, they're already a force to be reckoned with. If I'm not mistaken, they won the... Uh, the gold medal at the Olympics last year, the women's uh, national team. So there is a big uh, upturn in, in in fortunes for Canada over the last few years. And you look at their pr- player production line, arguably the most popular name out there is Alfonso Davies, um, came out of the uh, system in, 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 uh, in North America. He's easily, I would categorize him as at his best, probably the best left back in the world at the moment. Such an in, in, incredible football player. And you, and you look through the the ranks of Canadian football, and there's a lot of names like that as well. And that's the impressive thing about, about a lot of these countries, right? Because um, like, if you notice the, the, the discussion that we've been having in, uh, in the last 10 minutes or so, a lot of it was centered around uh, teams of the past and how they compare to teams of the current uh, era at the moment. And, and the one glaring thing that we can take note is that in the past, it was all very driven by flair and just pure expression. And your, you know, your ability to just single-handedly rampage past opponents in those games, and that's just how things were in the past. But as football evolved, it became a significantly more technical sport in which teams are paying attention to minor, marginal gains that they can get over teams, and tactics becomes uh, more refined, and, and players become more athletic and more powerful. Things have become very uh, data-centric as well. So. 
football is no longer just a game of expression. So it was always a case of who was going to catch up to things like that first. And that's why I feel over the years, the South Americans to some extent have been left behind because they've always held on to old school principles of football, which is all about expression, whilst your your more modern teams like your Germany's and your France and to a large extent at the moment even England have caught on to the newer style, which is to be more era-specific, which is to be more technical. And that's one of the things that the Canadian national team has been able to do. It's not the prettiest national team. They don't play the prettiest football, but it's very vertical. And vertical is the it's the football fraternity's favourite word at the moment. It's not tiki-taka, it's vertical. It's about how you get the ball from the, from the bottom to the top in the shortest amount of time uh, possible. And that's one of the things that the Canadian national team do really, really well. Um, and it, honestly, Cam, this World Cup is a, it's more of a, you know, a, a preparatory one for the Canadian national team because they're all just gearing up for the 2026 World Cup that's going to be played on home turf. And by the time that comes, I can't wait to, to look at how this Canadian national team setup will be like. Okay, so that's uh, Canada. I now know a lot more about <laughs> Canadian national team than I knew before. And I think that listeners at home will be in the same position. Uh, it's very hard to pin Quiche down with him making a decision on, on choosing. But I'm going to ask the other two then. I'm going to list the nations that have progressed. There are still some uh, places up for grabs. All of Africa, I believe, is still up for grabs. So I'm going to start with you, Azran. I'm going to, st- I'm going to list a whole bunch of names. You're going to choose one of these which you think will, because others will be there, I'm going to go the furthest anyway. Qualified already. Serbia, Spain, Switzerland, France, Belgium, Denmark, Netherlands, Croatia, England, Germany, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Ecuador, and Canada. Of these, Azran, choose who you think is going to go the furthest. Ooh, tough to say. The heart says England or even Argentina, but the hit says probably at the end of the day, football is a game of 22 gentlemen chasing the pitch and the Germans win, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> But that has not been true for the last few tournaments, though. They did win in, in, in Brazil. So uh, I think the, the, it's a good German squad, well-drilled. They know how to win. And the Germans always know how to win anyway. But this is, I, I, I think Germany, uh, probably. It's a safe bet. What's a safe bet? All right, Gogolin, okay, you know, the heart says Argentina, but let's, let's let the head come in on this no, one. I mean, Argentina has got a great shot. They've got a good side. I would say the Germans are still on a rebuilding mode, you know, so we still can take, uh, uh, take some chance in that. That, you know, every, the Germans always come, win the World Cup, then they have this big rebuilding mode, and then they come back, you know, shooting guns and blazing, blazing guns. So watch their under-21 team first. And then we will know how the German setup is for the next World Cup. But I think the, this World Cup, they're still in a rebuilding squad. So I think Argentina, if you ask me, still has a, has a good chance as any team right now that listed. Is it? And not to mention England. I would, I would, if I was a betting man, I would put outside bet on England winning the World Cup. All right, Keisha, I, I you, you have to make a choice. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say who's going to win the World Cup, but I'll say that this is going to be the year where African teams finally break through. Um, mm. Because you... you, you Let's not go very far. You look at, I think the best games to watch in the next the next few days are the ones in the uh, African region. You look at the eight teams that are battling it out for four spots. These are incredible football teams from Cameroon, Algeria, Mali, Tunisia, um, Egypt, Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria. And it was the best part. Each of these games just has a single goal deficit that's separating them after the first leg. Um, Ghana and Nigeria ended nil-nil. The four teams that come out of this incredible battle, I think at least one or two of them will make a big splash at the World Cup. 
Okay. Names, though? Names? Just one or two? That's uh... Ooh. I, I, I'm going to go with the with romantic pick, right? Who I want to, to, to win the World Cup. And I'm on the same board as Astron. Um, I want Argentina to win it purely because... Do I think that someone has got to win the World Cup because they before they can be classified as the greatest of all time? No, but that's what the general populace seems to think. So if that's the case, then I want Lionel Messi to win the World Cup. So then we can finally stop having that discussion. Yeah, no, I mean, if if Argentina did win, and, and, and I'm surprised by this almost consensus here, uh, if they did, then, yeah, Lionel Messi would be, he'd be the greatest of all time, like, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, okay, but uh, in a moment, though, when we come back, we're going to be talking about Malaysia and the Malaysian national team here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball. And during the break, actually, the guys were talking and they've changed they've all retracted everything and they suddenly said Spain are gonna win. So <laughs> so you know, don't believe a word of what these people say. So uh, we move on, though, to the Malaysian game. Malaysian national team played uh, two matches recently in a small tournament. And, um, well, I don't know what to say. I, I mean, Azran, my, my knowledge of the local game is not as good as yours. But on Saturday, Singapore 2, Malaysia 1. Although back on the 23rd of March, it was Malaysia 2, Philippines 0. Uh, my, my, my question is, Singapore, what happened? If you look at the highlights... Um or if you watch the game, uh, we had a couple of chances that we should have buried uh, early in the game. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't. And that sort of put Singapore on the front foot. Uh, they managed to score two two nice goals, I would say, uh, from uh, Fandi Ahmad, the legendary Fandi Ahmad's son. Yeah. Um, yeah so for me, again, Malaysia, uh, I expect that uh, this new coach from South Korea uh, would bring in really major changes uh, to the game. Because we've got, in terms of the talents that we have coming through, uh, we know that JDT has sort of uh, built an army of Malaysian footballers. No? So, uh, And I, I hope that we can utilise that uh, to the best of our capabilities. And uh, let's see if we can qualify for any regional championships coming soon. Yeah. Uh, Kishnan, you uh, obviously had your eye on these matches, and um, I mean, I, I have I I haven't paid too much attention to to these things, but I had been hearing things about Singapore actually, so maybe I shouldn't be too shocked by uh, a defeat to Singapore. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it's a really really good Singapore inside. Uh, the, the the guy that scored the two goals, Iksan Pandi, um, he's tearing it up in the Thai league at the moment, and prior to being in the Thai league, he was in in the Norwegian first division with, with FC Jerv, where he looked really good as well. He wasn't just a fringe player. He was scoring goals consistently. And he was phenomenal at the Suzuki Cup. So this is a guy um, that, like, Singaporean fans have finally found their number nine. And you know what's the most frustrating thing? The most frustrating thing is, when I look at, at, at the Malaysian national team and the Singaporean national team, I think we've got a better defence overall. I know, I know we can see the two goals. But in general, I think we've got a better defence at our best. I think we've got a pretty solid midfield and a pretty solid wing. The one thing we don't have is the one thing that Singapore has, which is that goal-scoring presence up front. And Iksan Fandi has been phenomenal for them. Uh, and, and, and it's not just that, right? It's the three Fandi Ahmad uh, brothers. It's Iksan, Irfan, 
and Ilhan. All of them are in the team. One is in centre-back, one is up front. The other guy is, is still young, getting into the team. So it, it's, there's a lot to be excited about the Singaporean national team in the next, in, in the next few years because uh, Iksan alone is going to cause so many problems uh, for teams across the region. Because he's also, he's, he's got a pretty big physique, which is something you don't see um, with strikers coming out of this region. Hey, Goglin, you are clearly old enough, and you and I are about the same age, old enough to remember when Malaysia were not necessarily world beaters, but were certainly competitive and had some, some, some glory nights. Um, do, you, do you think that uh, failure begets failure? I, I know that there's possibly a new beginning with uh, a, a new coach, but is there a mindset now, do you think, of failure? No, 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 completely not. I think the, the new players coming in, especially like what Azran saying, there's, these are from J, the players from JDT. And in JDT, the word failure is <laughs> a very, very bad word. So they have been shaped mentally and, you know, every day they've been shaped to play like international stars. They, they have an international mindset and everything. So I don't think the failure begets failure. This, it, you have to give uh, Kim some time with his team, you know. You cannot have a... Immediate results, and I think from what I've seen so far, it's, it's it's in the right direction. So yeah, let's give them some time. But you know, it's a new era, the new players. I, we need to get rid of the whole uh, mentality of you know failure. This is Malaysia, after all. You play for the badge, and you know each player that coming in from, especially from players from the JDT squads, are known to have you know high standards. They are drilled into them every day at training. So yes, I, that, that question does not apply here. Whatever Gok said about time. Um, I completely agree. I think with, with, with new football managers, there was a lot of bitterness about um, the way Tan Cheng Ho left because I think he was a real fan favourite. Uh, some of the football we played under him in 2019. 2019's version of Malaysia is probably my all-time favourite version of Malaysia that I've watched at least. Um, it was incredible in those games against UAE, against Thailand, um, from a team that in 2015 lost 10-0 to UAE. Um, four years later under Tan Cheng Ho, we very nearly beat them at the Bukit Jalil Stadium. Uh, it was an incredible performance. But Kim Pangun comes in, obviously with a lot of pressure on his shoulders. And that's the problem. We know that football managers need time. But does he have that time? Because the biggest uh, mission for Kim Pangun at the moment, and he alluded to this himself as well, is um, this June, the Asian Cup qualifiers. Uh, in Malaysia's group, all the games are being played at the Bukit Jalil Stadium. This is the final opportunity for Malaysia to get themselves a ticket into the Asian Cup in 2023, which has been the national team's target for the last few years. It looked good. They looked set for it in 2019. But then COVID happened. And then we heard a lot of other rumours as well. And next thing you know, last year, they got completely smashed in those games. And they ended up having to go into the playoff round. And now they find themselves in a really tricky situation where after Kim Pangon's first two games, the only acceptable ones were the first 45 minutes against Philippines when we were absolutely incredible. It was, it was a, a very modern style of football, very different, high pressing. Uh, and we got that for 45 minutes before some of the changes were made and you know we, we fell off that. So Kim Pangon has got some big decisions to make in terms of some pretty sizable names that he might need to drop um, to bring in fresher names who can cope with the intensity of what he demands in a football team. And these are big calls that he's got to make in the next couple of months before that crunch uh, crunch time in, in June. And Keith, to add on, I hope for, for our sake, you're right, we haven't had classic striker ever since probably arguably what, Safi Sali. So hopefully for me, at least um, taking a note out of what JDT is doing, hopefully Safawi can learn from because obviously JDT, their strikers are usually uh, good, good, really top-notch foreign imports. So yeah. Safawi, the likes of Safawi, because I... I think he's probably our best attacker at this point of time. So hopefully yeah. he can earn 
certain moves uh, from the strikers that he's playing with in KDT. So hopefully we can mould these sort of players into our our strikers for, for the national yeah. team. I, I completely agree, Azran. I think the striking position is something that we've got to address significantly. But there's two other names, actually. Um, I think Darren Locke, he, he, could, he could come in and add something different. Because he's looked great for PJCT last year, this year. But I think he missed out. If I'm not mistaken, it was COVID. He dropped out of this current squad because of COVID-19. He could have given us something different up front. And there's one guy. There's one guy that I really, really, really just want to see in the national team. I don't understand why he's not in this squad. Because he's been great in the Liga Super, which is S. Kumaran. He's been scoring goals for fun. And I think he needs to be in the national team as well. Because he gives you that edge mm. uh, from, from an offensive point of view. So, there are options. It's just about how Kim Pangon picks his squad uh, heading into June. Which is going to be really, really important. Okay. Well, th- thanks for that. And uh, we're going to wrap up now. But I want a lot, one last question to Gogolin. As a casual Malaysian fan, like myself, um, and I think, you know, I'm not alone at this in this country... Perhaps I should be lowering my expectations, not expecting Malaysia to be, uh, you know, lifting the World Cup. What do you think would be uh, a, a realistic expectation or hope, anyway, for for a casual Malaysian fan? No, oh, well, we have to be best in this region. That's that's the the ultimate uh, goal right now. You know, we, stepping stones is the region, and we have we were we have led uh, teams like Vietnam. Uh, not let's not even speak about Thailand, but teams like Vietnam overtake us. So we have to claim that mantle back and be the best in the region. And that would give every Malaysian a pride already moving forward. And then we can look at Asia or South, uh, what, South Asia or whatever it is, you know, for now. But the, realistically, we need to be the best in this region. And with our footprint and our population and our uh, crazy mentality, what the love for the sport, it's no excuse. So that's it. Malaysia's going to win the World Cup in 2024? Uh, no. I don't even know when. When is the next World Cup? Twenty twenty six. Malaysia is going to win the World Cup in twenty twenty six, and that's a reasonable expectation for all Malaysian fans. So uh, we wrap up now, and it remains for me now to thank uh, guest Goglin. Thank you so much for coming on Monday as well as on Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kish um, thank you so much guys keep an eye on Africa and finally to thank a newcomer who I think had a pretty good international debut Azran we just do one names here thank you guys thanks yeah. for having me internationals as I mentioned earlier it's not really my favourite cup of tea but I love the players that play in it of course alright well uh, at future date uh, Liverpool will be on and we'll, we'll, um, we'll have you on for that so, uh, well, thank you all, and please join us on uh, Friday for On the Ball. But for now, it's off the ball here on BFM 89.9. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.